Welcome to episode 221 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the Everything About Reflectors episode. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars, and I won't get us into any copyright trouble. (laughs) How many reflectors have you owned, Shane? Two plus one, and the plus one is in a different category because that one was a, you know, 800 times power magnification that I bought at like winners or someplace like that. And, uh, it doesn't, it didn't really work very well. That was my first <laughs> telescope, but, <laughs> but no a telescope at winners. I don't think I've ever heard of. Winners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it didn't work very well, but, uh, my two real reflectors that I've owned, uh, the first one was my first real telescope, which was a eight inch, uh, sky watcher, um, pretty mm-hmm. classic Dobsonian. Mm-hmm. And then I got the aperture fever and moved up to a 12 inch mead light bridge, uh, which I enjoyed for a number of years. How about, mm-hmm. uh, how about you, Chris? I know you've had, uh, at least one or two. Yeah, I, I had an eight inch, um, reflector. It was an eight inch of six and it was by Celestron and it was right before, um, they really, like everybody started making pretty decent reflectors. So it was, it was kind of at the end of like the big Dobsonian boom. And mine was of uh, pretty compromised quality, unfortunately. I think the primary was good. The primary was probably really good. Um, but they had, they had done some strange things with this uh, particular design. So one of the big selling points was that the telescope was going to be uh, much lighter because they'd used a conical mirror in it. And uh, they had spent all this time making these conical mirrors, but they hadn't uh, calculated the fact that um, these mirrors would be so light that the telescope would have to balance so high up and their rocker box design wouldn't accommodate it. So they put in a cast iron mirror cell to compensate for the weight. (laughs) So that introduced a variety of thermal uh, amongst other issues. And, and then what else did they do? Oh, the the secondary had horrible sleeks in it. It was like um, it was like when it was being coated, there was like two wires that were lying across it, or it didn't get a full coating, and so uh, that was a problem. And you also couldn't align the secondary with the primary, no matter what you did. So one of the other one of the other technological marvels of the scope was supposed to be it had a single stock, so you wouldn't get um, the four-vane mirror uh, support spikes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the design was poorly executed. So I ended up having to do a lot of work to modify the uh, the single stock in order to get it even closely aligned with the with the primary. So I, I doubt it ever was uh was as good as as like what what mike or your scopes would have been um out of the trunk on a long bumpy trip to grasslands so, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that was that was sort of my my introduction and the really unfortunate part was i was really teed off and and this telescope company or this telescope um store had has gone out of business by by a number of years ago is uh, they were supposed to have like taken it out and taken a look at the scope um upon purchase. So I think I maybe even had paid a premium for that. And uh, clearly they had not because anybody that has ever even 
looked through a reflector or used one at all for any period of time, any sort of um, even somebody that was a newcomer and, and just getting into it would have realized the shortcomings of this telescope like I did pretty quick. Um, so I was really, really disappointed. Of course, you know, at the time I lived two or 3000 kilometers away from this telescope store and, and I called them up and chewed the guy out on, on a couple of occasions because I was so cheesed, but um, yeah, I overpaid and uh, yeah, that was, that was my introduction. And then I have a 12 inch reflector that uh, some friends had uh, called together and get to use Mike's 12 inch uh, reflector uh, quite a bit. So I've, I've had some, some experiences with them, maybe not all of them good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I certainly loved my, uh, reflectors when I had them. Um, and you know, the, uh, the Skywalker was a phenomenal performer. Like it did a really, really good job. Um, I, I still, there, there's a few, there's a few observations and, and I think you have this with all of your gear. You have these observations that just are so good. Sometimes it just gets etched in your memory. And mm -hmm. uh, probably my best view ever of M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, was through my 8-inch Skywatcher. And it was just outside of the city we live in. And um, I couldn't believe, like, it was so photographic. Um, like, the dust lanes were so apparent. And, like, the structure within the galaxy was, uh, like I say, it was photographic almost that night. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a wonderful telescope, but I, I got aperture fever. And, um, you know, something we'll probably talk a little bit about here is with reflectors, the, the larger they get, the more challenging they become to transport. But one of the ways uh, the manufacturers have overcome this is they introduce a truss system. So it, it becomes like a put to like a build your telescope sort of scenario where you have a lower tube assembly, you attract, you attach some truss poles to that, and then you have an upper tube assembly. And, and that's how my 12 inch mead light bridge was. So it made it a lot more portable, but I just feel like maybe the truss design wasn't the best for like a, an entire night of observing. And, and sometimes, you know, like you would tighten up the trusses as tight as you could get them. You'd move the telescope and just shifting it all of a sudden, like changed some of the pressure, you know, that were on these attach points and now it was loose. So you tighten it up again. So there were times too, where I would have to recollimate later in the evening as temperature changed it a little bit. At least I, I felt I needed to. And, and it just became a, a bit of a frustrating experience, uh, because of that. And then, uh, I also found that a big daub like that, I just wasn't using in my backyard because it was a real commitment to set it up. And uh, as such, I, I really didn't use it that much. So I ended up becoming a refractor guy, but we're not here to talk about refractors, are we, Chris? Yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk briefly about how reflectors actually uh, work kind of like in the, in the simplest form, Shane, like what, what is sort of the optical uh, layout for the reflector? Well, so a reflector will have two mirrors. Uh, so we often refer to the largest mirror as the primary. So that'll be at the bottom of the tube. And its job is to collect all of the light that you're, you know, have the telescope pointed at. Uh, it uh, reflects the light to a secondary mirror, which is at a 45 degree angle. And this secondary mirror shoots the light into the eyepiece. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a lot smaller than the primary. Uh, I don't know. I think the usual is maybe around 20%, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's it. It's a, it's a pretty simple design and, uh, there's not a lot involved there. Yeah. So, and just to kind of dive a little deeper, the, 
the light comes in like the open tube and then it travels uh, down that tube and it hits the, the mirror. And these mirrors are, are basically glass and they're circular and uh, they're formed into a parabola. And that helps to, uh, to correct for, for some of the otherwise um, problems that you would run into. Like you need, you need it to focus and you need it to focus um, as best as you can right across the whole field of view. And, uh, and that glass mirror has a thin aluminum coating. There's other coatings you can use, but typically it's aluminum. And they have between like an 80 and a 98% reflectivity. And then it comes up and it hits the secondary. And the secondary is an optical flat. So it's meant to be as, as flat as um, humanly possible uh, kind of thing. And then that, uh, that uh, is at a 45 degree angle, but you know, because of the way it's set, um, it's going to change the direction of the light by 90 degrees. So it, it exits at, at 90 degrees through the, through the side of the tube towards the top of the tube, right? And then that, that of course, makes them easier to mount because the mirror can be at the bottom, literally inches away from the ground. And then the, uh, the, the light will come to focus, uh, you know, uh, three to, you know, 50 feet above the ground, depending on how big the telescope is, I suppose. Eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, let's see. So I did, did a little digging here. I didn't know this, but I guess even as far back as, as in the time of Galileo, um, they were discussing, uh, you know, producing uh, reflector telescopes. So, of course, uh, Galileo's uh, telescope was, was of an early um, achromatic design, maybe not even achromatic. It was, it was a refractor. I don't even know if it was achromatic or not. I don't know if it was correcting for colors or not, but um, it was more of a ref refractor. It was a refractor. And then um, there was somebody I didn't write down, but there was somebody in uh, 1616 who tried to make a reflector out of copper and wrote that, uh, nope, that uh, the, the idea was sound, but that uh, they couldn't produce any kind of satisfactory uh, images uh, out, of the, out of that very early uh, reflector. Do you, ever, do you ever hear about any of those really, really early ones? Not really. No, I, you know, this is, um, the history of, of, uh, like of these, of some of these telescopes anyway, I've, I've never really looked into it at all. Yeah. Um, and then it was Isaac Newton in the 17th century, of course. And that's where you get the name, uh, Newtonian. And he, uh, he created, uh, a, a reflector using a spherical, uh, metal mirror. But then eventually, like we talked about, the ones now all have uh, parabolic figures, and those were introduced uh, in the 18th century. Um, the spherical mirrors, though, they work pretty good in uh, longer focal ratios. I think like F8 and F9 and and uh, longer. I think that's my understanding of it. The spherical aberration that's, that's created by the spherical mirror um, starts to get, uh, you know, neutralized. Uh, the longer, the longer the uh, focal is. Uh, that that's correct. I've never used a spherical mirror uh, before, but I, I don't know. Maybe you did. Uh, I don't think so. Again, it would have been whatever came with those telescopes at the time. So not, yeah, uh, not too sure. Yeah, some sometimes really inexpensive telescopes like the. I think there was like a lot of f uh, eight point eight hundred and fourteen millimeter reflectors that were produced for a while. And they all had spherical mirrors. And so um, I think they worked okay, but they were just like very basic beginner scopes. And then I, some of the uh, Celestron first scopes use, uh, I believe they use a spherical mirror. Some of them have used that. They may still use it, but uh, I know that some of them are now uh, parabolic because of uh, 
you know, the challenges involved in making uh, spherical mirrors and, and not getting good sharp images across the field of view. Um, so let's see. So those early, early telescopes, um, the 17th, early 18th century, uh, they were all using polished metals. Um, even the Leviathan at Parsonstown, which is uh, a pretty big and famous uh, telescope uh, used by, uh, I think it was the Earl of Ross and made some of those famous uh, spiral nebulae uh, sketches, uh, those, those kind of jump out to me and sort of history of astronomy. That that's one of the, the big ones, uh, for me anyway, Shane, I don't know if you, if you can recall those, those images are often in, um, amateur astronomy, uh, books on getting started and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen them in a number of astronomical presentations at, uh, star parties and, uh, well, yeah, mostly star parties. Yeah. So that, uh, mirror was about six feet across just under it. Wow. That's huge. Yeah, but unfortunately, these mirrors, they all tarnished really easily. And uh, Herschel, William Herschel, uh, was was using these as well. And uh, what he would do, and this is my understanding from, from my recollection and my readings on all this, is that uh, he would have at least a couple mirrors for each telescope. And sort of one mirror was always being polished and one mirror was always in use. And then uh, kind of once I think the polishing process took however long it was, um, then he would swap them out on a, on like a really quite regular basis. I think maybe on the, on the realm of, uh, you know, a month or two at the longest, or maybe a few weeks or so, uh, at the shortest. So, uh, pretty involved process, uh, in order to, uh, operate some of these larger telescopes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about something that big and, you know, at a time too, where, uh, you know, they didn't have all the technology that we have now, that, that would have been quite an ordeal. Yeah, and it was the the real one of the real breakthroughs came through um, was a uh, French scientist, and I've I've gone and seen some of his work when when I was in France, and that was Focal uh, or Focalt or however you want to say it, F O C A U L T, and uh, has a big pendulum in a in a uh, it's a church or something like that. Anyway, we went and looked looked at it. It's pretty cool. I have a postcard sitting on my desk. I purchased there and he introduced the uh, silvered glass mirror in the 19th century. Hmm. So in the late uh, 1800s, he, he was starting to produce those. Of course uh, they had some of their own minor limitations, but they were overcoming um, the need to, to polish up. So they would just need to be resilvered um, probably on a more frequent basis than what we do now. But uh you know, probably on a, every uh, year or two, probably the, the silver would need to be redone, um, which would seem like a huge, huge advance um, since you could just sort of uh, whip them out and, and have it resilvered and then get it back in there. So, uh, and it can be done pretty quick. I know the person I'd like to have on, I was talking to you before, um, Peter Picure, um, he, he will silver a mirror in the field as a demonstration. Um, so wow. I guess he did this down at Stellafane one year and just sort of pulled up and pulled his mirror out and did a silvering. And then they observed with it that night. So, uh, you know, uh, you got to take some great precautions in doing this, but, uh, apparently that that's how quick you can silver a mirror and the silvered mirrors apparently give uh, tremendous, um, optical performance. So, uh, uh, you just, just need to do a little work there. Um, but by the 20th century, the mirrors, uh, we're all being made out of glass and then using a thin metal coating like um, some sort of aluminum. And, uh, and, a, and, and now what they do is put a thin um, film of silicon oxide, I think is what it is over top. Anyway, it's, it's a, 
virtually transparent coating that protects um, the silvering of the mirror so it doesn't tarnish um, over time. And so you retain uh, a huge amount of reflectivity between 80 and 98%, I think you can get. And then um, just has this thin coating over top, which, which eats into a very small fraction of a percent. And I think originally, like those metal mirrors probably, I mean, who knows how much reflectivity they might've had at best, uh, maybe they were better than 50%, um, but probably most of the time they weren't even 50% uh, reflective. Um, but now, you know, uh, we're able to capture all these faint photons with these larger instruments. One thing I didn't really put in here, Shane, is, you know, there's, there's really two types of Newtonian reflectors, you know, and as, as the reflector um, allows people to make a large instrument for a very affordable price, there was another sort of revolution that, that took place, which was um, spearheaded by John Dobson. And uh, I don't know if you can talk a little bit off the top of your head, a little bit about sort of the Dobsonian revolution, um, you know, and, and why the, the reflector became so popular for amateur astronomers. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the John Dobson story is one of pure genius, I think, because one of the biggest uh, issues against reflectors were, was how do you mount these things? Cause they're big and heavy. And at that point, I think the majority of mounts that were in use or in production were basically equatorial mounts uh, that had a limit and you couldn't put a big Newtonian on these things. So John Dobson uh, built uh, the Dobsonian mount that we're all pretty familiar with now. Uh, and it's the simplest thing in the world, really. Like it's just some plywood put together, uh, some big bearings attached to the side of the optical tube of your reflector. It just simply sits in there uh, with a little bit of Teflon pads and you know, you have yourself an exceptionally smooth and exceptionally stable mount that you can put almost, you know, you can scale it up to any size of reflector. So uh, they're used on mass today by uh, any, pretty much any reflector telescope that you see is basically a Dobsonian mount, uh, you know, holding it up and allowing it to function. Yeah, they were, uh, you know, his, his early early versions, he was grinding um, porthole glass and turning those into uh, parabolas and then just getting like whatever kind of flat mirrors he could find and kind of cobbling them together out of uh, sonotube, like cement form, round cement form pouring tubes. And then, uh, you know, they make like a rocker box, which is really just like it's like a box with an open top and an open back. And you put a couple round circular bearings kind of. Um, might might just use uh, the ends of some very large plastic pipe and uh, put those on the side somehow. And then, um, yeah, that was it. They kind of looked basically kind of like a cannon, you know, uh, on a lazy Susan really is, is kind of what, what, how they work up down. And then the lazy Susan allows them to spin around. It's very basic. eh? Very basic. Yeah. And um, I know some people um, like they get a, a Dobsonian or a reflector telescope and the Dobsonian mount that came with it. Um, maybe is a little too light in terms of, uh, uh, you know, it's the stability that it provides. So people just rebuild it in their garage uh, with, uh, you know, either wood that they have, or they go to the local hardware store and buy a sheet of plywood and, and make a mount. So it's, it's, again, it's it, what, what the genius in it is the simplicity in my mind. Yeah. And it just equals such a, a functional solution uh, and makes observing really, really exciting. 
Yeah, and uh, Dobson died, uh, I think, about uh, seven or eight years ago or something like that. I should have, should have been in these notes. I wouldn't mind doing an episode on on, on John Dobson uh, as a standalone. Um, I was able to spend a weekend with him a um, number of years ago. He came up to our star party in Nova Scotia, and I was one of the organizers. And uh, as part of that, we kind of get there. I got to really hang out with him a lot over the course of uh, three or four days. So um was a was a really unique and, and interesting experience so when i met him he was eating dandelions off off the uh, campground lawn um but he would he would often say that he wasn't brilliant or anything like that that he was just too stupid to make anything more complicated so <laughs> well there's there's genius and simplicity uh isn't there like a robert branson quote that like any fool can make something complex <laughs> so I, I always appreciate that well, that's that's pretty good. You're you're clearly uh, a, a greater man of letters than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and he he also knew uh, Lucien Kemble a little bit. And there's if you look into the archives of the RESC, there's there's some photos of Kemble and uh, and John Dobson together. And uh, you know, uh, Kemble is a uh, Franciscan friar. Father Lucien Kemble is a Franciscan friar, and John Dobson is as an ex monk and sometimes uh, theoretical physics uh, lecturer at, at I think Princeton and maybe some of the other big universities. Uh, I can't help but think those conversations must have been uh, pretty interesting, to say the least. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, pretty cool. So I think prior to that, you know. Um, a lot of the time amateurs were using uh, reflectors just on the uh, sort of traditional equatorial mounts or the German equatorial mounts, which I, I think most people can picture are the kind of looks like a couple pipes or three pipes, uh, one pipe as the stand and one pipe cutting through and the other pipe as the, uh, as, as the axis pointing at, at Polaris. And then, you know, you sort of hand track or have motors to track them. Um, and those can be used to pretty good effect. But I think once you get, uh, to about 10 inches, they, they start to require such a greater and greater size um, that a 12 inch would just be such a massive telescope. And, and I think 16 inch scopes were around, but ex exceptionally rare and expensive. So for the most part, amateurs uh, would, uh, would spend their weekends grinding six or eight inch mirrors and, and with the hopes of maybe one day constructing an observatory to house, maybe like a 12 inch telescope um, with the Dobsonian telescopes, uh, you know, a 12 inch, uh, almost in some ways is, is like a good starting size. I mean, we often recommend eight inches as the starting size and then, uh, 12 inches, uh, can be a, a bit big and heavy, but that's a pretty common size to see in the hands of amateurs. Now, when, when you go around 10 inches, uh, and 12 inches are, are pretty uh, common sizes, uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I kind of think the 12 inch is the, you're getting close to that limit of, um, a, a telescope that you could just pick up off the ground and put into your vehicle and, you know, travel back and forth from your observing site. Um, I, I know some people do it with 15s, but, um, you, you know, even at a 15 inch, you're, you're getting pretty heavy. You know, that mirror is going to be very heavy. The, that whole lower tube assembly is going to have some pretty good yeah. weight to it. And, you know, I'm not saying you can't lift that thing up, but it becomes a much bigger challenge. And then usually when you get above that 15 inch, um, 
size. Now you're talking about like wheelbarrow handles and yeah. wheels to move it around and yeah. uh, maybe a trailer to store it as well as transport it. Even though it breaks down with the trusses, you know, it still takes up a lot of room and there's a lot of weight. Like, um, don't quote me on this, but I think like a 20 inch obsession, I think the lower tube assembly by itself is over a hundred pounds, you know, so oh, yeah. that's, that's getting pretty substantial. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they do work so well though, when, when it's uh, well executed, but, um, I know that now, you know, the telescopes have become, uh, much, much better built. And in particular, uh, I think like the Skywatcher Dobsonians are really, really good. Um, I really like the 10 inch F 4.7s for a variety of reasons, because, um, I had a friend who bought one and, uh, we observed together quite a bit and that 10 inch F 4.7 was smaller, lighter, more portable, better optical quality than my eight inch F six was, um, you know, I, I think 10 years, uh, you know, sort of in, in between the two models. So now these, these, uh, Skywatcher Dobbs are, uh, are just much, much better designed and more portable than, uh, than the telescopes of, uh, of 20 or 30 years ago. So, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, I know I get into astronomy, they, they were recommending the Eden chef six, but, um, the designs and, and that just weren't quite, uh, there yet. Unfortunately, we had to wait about another 10 years, um, for, for those designs to get kind of fleshed out. Like, when we were buying those in, in the nineties, they were still just modified versions of, of the telescopes that Dobson had, had knocked out, uh, on the streets of San Francisco, um, not quite as well executed as, as what he, uh, was making, but now, um, for, for much less, uh, of an expense, you, you can, you know, and I, I don't think you can make one for as cheap as you can buy a, a Skywatcher, a 10 inch F 4.7. I think that's just a really, really beautiful size uh, instrument. If you're looking to get into that kind of gear. Yeah. Yeah. 10 inches, uh, a beautiful telescope for sure. Um, the, uh, like how much it really opens up the sky is incredible. And, um, you know, as a refractor user and, you know, a guy that uses smaller refractors, um, I love the views, you know, through these larger, uh, reflectors, um, even if it's an eight inch, it, you know, it's substantial and they're wonderful to look through. Yeah, there are some shortcomings, though. Maybe we'll, mm -hmm. we'll just uh, talk about those uh, a little bit. When it comes to, to reflectors and some of the compromises, Shane, um, what are some of the things that come to the top uh, of your mind for optical errors or other performance challenges? Um, there's a few things. There's the, uh, the secondary mirror and the, um, uh, I don't know what they're called, but like the, uh, uh, the kind of the arms that hold it in place, uh, they can cause some aberrations. The spider. Uh, yeah, the spider. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the secondary mirror itself, it, you know, causes some aberrations just like any central obstruction would, whether you're, you're using a compound telescope or a reflector. Um, but what you'll notice with a reflector, particularly on bright stars, and you've seen this in photographs too, uh, the diffraction spikes are like a plus sign, basically, you know, you left to right up and down. And those are caused by the spider arms that hold the secondary in place. Um, now, those are caused by straight spider arms. However, you can get curved, uh, curved arms or curved veins. I forget what they refer to them as. And the curved ones, uh, I think, eliminate that or at least greatly reduce that type of refraction pattern. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think some people actually kind of like the aesthetic of seeing that. 
But mm-hmm. if you're if you're a double star person and you're trying to split a, a challenging double, sometimes that diffraction spike can land right over top of the companion star, and you'll never see it. <laughs> so for uh, the hardcore double star observers, uh, they typically stay away from reflectors for that reason. Um, so yeah, there's that's one of the big ones. Um, another one is collimation. So collimation is aligning those mirrors, um, this primary and the secondary. And if they're not aligned, you're, you're not going to get very good viewing through this telescope. Um, so if you have a solid tube telescope, the collimation, uh, usually isn't too bad in between observing sessions, but you know, for me, I would have, I would collimate every single time I observed, uh, because mm-hmm. usually I had to tweak it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, now with the mead light bridge with the trusses, that collimation sometimes was really, really off, uh, in between uses. So, you know, I would collimate it, have a great night, take it apart, go home, come back, observe again. And the second time, uh, sometimes the collimation was really challenging. I, like I would use a, a laser collimator and, um, for the reflector people that have done this process before, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I won't really get into the process cause it's a little complicated, but sometimes the return beam of that laser never hit the secondary because it was so far off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, you know, if, if you're not even hitting the secondary, you don't like it becomes a real challenge to try to collimate the thing. So, so that was, uh, that's another one. Um, what about, uh, what about you, Chris? What are some other, you know, considerations, I guess, that aren't always positive with reflectors? Yeah, I think, I think one of them, and, and, uh, we had, we had an email today in our, in our previous episode we recorded, somebody mentioned the weight and they had, they had bought a 12 inch and they'd used it and it started feeling heavy. So they went to a 10, then they went to an eight and then they went to a six, which was still too heavy. So now they've gone to a six inch mech suit off and, and are a little bit happier, but, uh, but yeah, definitely. I think the weight is probably one of the, the big challenges. Um, you know, of course, if you have a permanent spot to mount it or you can pull it out on something, um, that that's a, a different ballpark altogether. Um, but one of the other challenges with uh, with that is if you do want to mount it permanently, like if you have a spot for an observatory, um, it's actually pretty tough to mount it in an observatory, right? Because mm-hmm. they want to shoot so low, like in talking with uh, Mark Radici, who owns, uh, he's, in, he's in the UK and has the Refreshing Views uh, podcast. But uh, one of the things he mentioned was he bought a 14-inch uh, Orion reflector and, and really liked it. But when he mounted it in his observatory, um, he found that the walls were too restrictive, even though he had like some drop-down walls designed and everything like that. So he ended up going with uh, an 11-inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain and and but keeps the uh, the 14-inch uh, um, Dobsonian for his uh, dark sky expeditions. But uh, yeah, so it can be a little bit difficult to to sort of accommodate it. Um, in that respect. So with, with the reflectors, especially the Dobsonian ones, you are a little bit uh, more restricted or would have to do some sort of custom design in order to, to put them into an observatory. So it's a, it's a larger, heavier telescope that you're really committing to uh, a setup and tear down uh, process. Uh, even if you do have a dark site, uh, you know, for, for the most part, you might be able to let, let it sit up for a few days or something. And I know some people have set them out for weeks or, or years on end, but uh, uh, but but it's not as easily able to uh, to be accommodated by a permanent uh, observatory structure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that is a, that is a good consideration for sure. They, they do take up a, a bit of space. Um, you know, I guess we kind of already talked about the travel issue, uh, the transportation issue. Mm-hmm. They are just bigger. So that, you know, you have to factor that in. Um, and then the larger of, uh, the, the larger, the aperture, um, some t- well, for sure, always the longer the cooling, uh, will take for the mirror and just mm-hmm. like any telescope, it has to achieve, um, kind of an equilibrium with the outside temperature. So certainly some of the larger apertures, uh, have mirrors or sorry, um, uh, fans on the bottom of the mirror, which will help to accelerate the cooling, uh, as well. So that's a, you know, yet another factor. Yeah. Um, one of the ones that really has been mostly resolved is uh, is the issue of coma. Mm-hmm. That used to be one of the one of the leading ones. So as a result of the uh, optical figure, especially in faster instruments like uh, uh, you know f four and a half or f five and and faster, and now they're making them down to f three. What what coma is for those that are unfamiliar is it looks kind of like comet shaped stars. Uh, the further you get off of, uh, of off the central, of course, in the center, things would be in focus, but rapidly things would um, become oblong and uh, and not very sharp, uh, especially in in faster instruments. Um, however, Teleview came out with a paracore corrector, which worked down to f four and a half or something like that. And others have come out with other ones, and then uh, uh, I guess probably about ten or twelve years ago now, they came up with a paracore two at Teleview. And that thing is uh, amazing. Mike bought one for his 12-inch uh, f4.9, and you know, at f4.9, I, w- I like, I kind of thought, geez, why did he bother getting one kind of thing? Because I feel like in our in a reflector, once you get to about f5, like I'm reasonably happy. And we headed out here last fall with my 32 millimeter mass CM in it, which gives you about as wide a field view as you can get in a two-inch uh, format. And uh, I thought the views were pretty good, but I was kind of chalking up some of the optical errors to to the eyepiece. And I think that eyepiece, um, well, it just doesn't correct for optical errors very well at all, but it's a good eyepiece, especially in uh, F7 or F8 uh, instruments. And then Mike uh, Mike put that paracore into his F4.9, which only takes to like F5.5 or something like that. And it was, it was just like viewing through a refractor. It was really like amazing, like how magical the, uh, the experience changed, uh, so quickly to go from the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the little bit of coma that was there at 4.9 to, uh, to, you know, boy, like it just looked refractor. Like really it did. I was shocked at the, at the difference in performance and, uh, yeah, pretty surprising. Pretty surprising how good those uh, paracord twos actually work. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That you know, coma is inherent in the optical design, but it, you can overcome that with these coma correctors. Uh, the paracord by Teleview is probably the most popular one, but I I know many other manufacturers make them. Like I think Explore Scientific has one. Skywatcher. I think they may have one Bader, I think makes one. So there's definitely uh, a number of them out there. I I can't comment on any other than the paracore because that's the only one I've ever seen in use. And yeah, it's wonderful. And, you know, it's very, it's adjustable so that you can kind of configure it according to the eyepiece that you're using. And uh, it really cleans things up. And like you said, it does make it kind of refractor-ish. It's just such a sharp image after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, now I haven't noticed this as much, but 
Um, I, I mentioned him earlier and uh, would like to get him on the show is, is Peter Picure, who makes uh, really large Dobsonians, um, built, makes the mirrors, makes the structure, makes, makes the whole nine yards and makes beautiful, beautiful equipment. Just like that's his own, that's his part of the hobby is making beautiful equipment um, with some of his friends. And uh, when we were observing, he said that he noticed this. Now, I can't say that I noticed this as much, and I, I don't want to speak for him, but this is something that really struck with me, is that he said that he noticed tonal differences because of the um, optical reflective properties of a reflector versus a refractor. And because of uh, the way that, that the optical systems performed, he felt that you got a little bit more color through, through the refractor. Now, I, I don't know. He said that the reflectors would, would maybe um, like change the, those color properties in a different way than, than, the re, than the refractor does. But I'm not sure, you know, like in the refractor, we're still using a mirror diagonal. So it does have uh, a mirrored surface there. Um, so I don't know. That, that's sort of one of those things I wouldn't mind asking him a little bit more about. But, uh, and, and I think one of the reasons why he went to the silvered mirror was because uh, if I recall it correctly, he was saying that uh, that that gives a slightly more accurate uh, representation. But I mean, when you look at his telescopes and what he's doing to to refine optical um, perfection in like 25 inch instruments, um, it's really on a whole different level than that. I think where you and I are watching. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, much admiration for that pursuit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so speaking of design, I'm just going to go over uh, really briefly a couple of different designs. So when we talk about uh, classical Newtonians, I think we already described it, um, has a mirror in the bottom, secondary mirror up top, and then it shoots the light out at 90 degrees. There's also the Herschelian named after William Herschel, and he designed very large instruments uh, up to about four feet across. And uh, what they did is they tilted the primary mirror uh, a little bit and so the observer would kind of look down the tube uh, in, in a way, and uh, it, it introduced some geometrical aberrations, but uh, it, it also had uh, had some benefits. And I see now in, in my notes here further down, it says that his reflectors achieved a 60% uh, reflectivity. One instrument, and I don't know if I ever looked through one of these, but I sure would like to, is the Sheaf Spiegler. And it's a variant on the Cassegrain design, but it... They also use uh, an oblique uh, reflector um, light path. Uh, and I think at one point in time, perhaps Orion was selling these in like a 3.6 or something like that size. And apparently they give um, really good images because they remove the need for diffraction spikes, but they introduce some optical aberrations. So you really need to have them in longer focal ratios. So they need to be like F15 uh, type instruments. Then uh, this design, I remember seeing these in some of the older uh, amateur astronomy books, is the YOLO design, not to be confused with You Only Live Once. Um, that was developed by Arthur Leonard in the in the 60s and was similar to the Sheaf Spiegler in that it was unobstructed using a tilted reflector design. Um, and it used a, uh, a primary but a concave secondary mirror um, with the same curvature as, as the primary. And uh, by method of, of the tilting, uh, they were able to create an unobstructed um, optical light path. So maybe one thing we'll do to kind of wrap this up a little bit, Shane, is uh, 
maybe we should share some of our favorite views. Now, I've never really owned uh, large reflectors, but um, you know, when I lived in in Ontario and I observed quite a bit with with Peter, I, I was able to observe through his sixteen and twenty five inch instruments. Uh, whenever he was taking them out, they would send me an email and let me know where they were going, and I that's what I was doing that night. I would go there, and uh, so I, I've had quite a bit of time with uh, like a sixteen inch telescope in particular, and and then with his 25-inch when he'd set it up at the star party. And I would basically, um, sort of fortunately, unfortunately, uh, Starfest in Ontario has uh, lots of people that come to it, uh, but I can't say that I looked through more than two or three different telescopes in the, in the three or four years I went there because uh, I just went and looked through Peter's 25-inch all night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's such a great opportunity to look through something that large. Um, you know, I mentioned my 8 and 12-inch that I owned. I've looked through two different 15s, um, Mark Bratton's 15-inch and then uh, an Obsession 15 I think I looked through Mark's. What was? Didn't he have a seventeen-ish, like seventeen point five yeah. or seventeen? Yeah, he had a fifteen-inch Tektron that Mike now has, and, and yeah. he needs a little bit of work. And then he bought an eighteen-inch um, scope. A guy in Hawaii made them. Uh, no longer makes them anymore. But yeah, those were the instruments that of his that we looked. We, we looked through the eighteen uh, quite a bit when he first got it. Yeah. 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 So the views through that were phenomenal. And then uh, 20 inch obsession. I've looked through multiple times and um, some memorable views through the 20 inch. Uh, one was the space station, which was pretty incredible uh, with a 31 millimeter Nagler in it. And then uh, the other views that really stand out with that are uh, the veil nebula. Um, and it stands out for a couple of reasons. Number one is there's just no way you fit the Veil Nebula in the field of view. It's it's a large object, and the field of view through these big reflectors is is narrow relative to what I'm used to in a refractor. But like the the wispiness, the the cloudiness, like it was again bordering on that photographic view. Uh, it was just the like you could spend an hour easily looking just at the veil and and not seeing anything twice. Like you, you're just pulling in so much uh, structure and detail. It was just incredible. So uh, I love those big apertures. And whenever they're out, I, I definitely try to spend some time at the eyepiece if, if the owner will uh, donate some time to me. <laughs> yeah. First time I went to a star party, um, there was there was a couple people that had relatively big dubs. Uh, one was uh, Bill Thurlow. He had a 17 and a half Coulter uh, F4.5 mounted to a portable trailer. Mm. And it was extremely sketchy. So there was two levels to the trailer. There was the solid section. And then what he would do is he would jack up a platform that was like on springs or something. At least that's what it felt like to me. And then put a ladder on top of that. And then like people would have to hold the ladder and be there to catch you if you fell. It was really risk sketchy. Uh, but I remember going up and looking at something for that, maybe like M81 or M82 or or something to that effect. And then uh, somebody else there had built an 18-inch uh, Dobsonian. And uh, basically, I just like kind of walked back and forth. And, and that person actually let me use their telescope um, for about two or three hours after they had gone to bed that night. That was like my first experience at a star party and um, ended up you know, leading me join the RESC and doing a lot of stuff I've done with uh, with the organization. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I've looked through lots of twenties and 18s and 16, 25s and, and that sort of thing. Um, one of the most memorable views I ever had was through the, uh, through the 16, my friend Peter made, and we were looking at NGC 2392, 
which is a planetary nebula up in, uh, I think it's in Gemini. And uh, kind of looks like a bit of a face or, or a lion's head or something like that. Has this huge cloud and a lot of structure inside of it. I really like planetary nebulas because one of the other favorite views I, I've had through uh, through through his 25-inch telescope was the Saturn Nebula, NGC 7009. And in that telescope, you could actually see like those very delicate arms that came out on either side of the uh uh, you know, of, of the planetary nebula disc. And um, those are called the ANSE and uh, something I'd always wanted to see. And I remember like sitting there and just looking at those. And uh, that telescope was a little bit, it had a tertiary mirror. It was a, it was a reflector, but it had three mirrors and then the light would come out the side at a 45 degree angle. So it was great. You, you would sit in an observing chair and then kind of look almost as if you're just looking straight up in the sky and uh, the other thing we spent a lot of time looking at through that telescope was uh, like the Merope Nebula and the Pleiades, um, pieces of the Veil Nebula, you know, because 25 inch instrument, I think his was F4.7 or 5 or something, I want to say. So with the Nagler 31, didn't have a huge field of view. Um, and just, yeah, just looking at like the Orion Nebula through a really big instrument, like a. Mm -hmm. A 20 inch, uh, you know, I, I find through a 20 inch, um, I, I can see quite a bit of color and detail in, in the Orion Nebula. I don't know about you. I don't think I've looked at Orion actually through a real large uh, telescope. Um, just trying to think here. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I have. Um, I do remember too, actually, one night when we were at Grasslands, somebody uh, not associated with, uh, uh, like, you know, with us observing. <laughs> was there with an 18 inch obsession, ultra compact. Oh, yeah. 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 The UC, the guy was from Germany or somewhere. Yeah. 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 That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because that telescope has always intrigued me or, or the whole ultra compact series from obsession has always intrigued me because of uh, just their portability and, and the light, you know, lightweight, everything about them is interesting. And uh, I think, I think he had it on M13 when I looked through it and yeah. very impressed with that telescope. Yeah, and there's like a faint galaxy that's nearby M13. And when I get the opportunity to look through a telescope that size or like even Mike's 12 inch, um, I always like to try to see that little galaxy. And, you know, once you get up to like that 16 inch size, um, you can see like a galaxy, I think near M13. I think there's some galaxies uh, near M57. And you can start to see a lot of structure in, in M57, a lot of other uh, deep sky objects. Uh, like that is uh, is really amazing. Really amazing to look at like the uh, like the Swan Nebula and the Lagoon mm -hmm. Nebula and those kind of nebulas. Uh, you know, they, they, although they appear with those gray and green tones that we're all used to seeing through like binoculars and small telescopes, the amount of detail actually begins to look more photographic. Like for example, with the uh, with M seventeen, the Swan Nebula. Um, you can really begin to see like puffy clouds, almost like some really fine detail uh, once you get into that, like that 15, 16 inch uh, telescope size. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful telescopes. I love looking through them. That's for sure. Okay. Well, anything else to, uh, to add to our uh, episode on uh, reflector telescopes, uh, Shane, or, or did you want some time to reflect on this before you reply? <laughs> No, no time needed to reflect. I, I think I've said all I can about reflectors. Um, 
you know, the, the maybe the last thing I'll say is if, if you have a big reflector and you want to bring it out to grasslands when we're observing, I would definitely appreciate it and pour you a coffee in the morning. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Coffee from Shane. Well, well worth it. Yeah, I know. I always love looking through the, through the big telescopes and certainly appreciate any time uh, that, uh, that owners uh, allot me when, when I get to look through them, you know, and I even, you know, I, I really love them. Even, uh, you know, people like Rick Husiak's 10 inch, when he brings that out, um, handmade 10 inch, uh, beautiful optics and well-working telescope is always like a lot of fun to look through that. Um, Cause once you're, once you're really uh, dragging your four inch or smaller telescopes out, like we are, um, when you go to something like a 10 or a 12 inch telescope, it's, it's just like a whole different ball game, eh? Like you're just in a completely different universe almost. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really changes things. It's yeah, it's totally different. Okay. Anything left to add, Shane? No, that's it. All right. Well, thanks Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. We're on Patreon for donations. And we always love getting your emails. We, uh, we always try to, you know, include those in, in the first episode, uh, each week now, I think we've kind of migrated to that and it's a lot of fun. Um, just sort of reading people's questions and their own observing experiences and uh, sort of really becoming a cornerstone of the podcast. So if you do have a large uh, reflector, uh, please write in, let us know your observations. We'd love to hear them. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.